0: ...by the power
1: of grace I When He-Man says, I have the power, it's saying to the kids, you don't have to do what you're told
2: anymore, you can be your own person. I got my first master's toys on my fourth birthday. It was just love at first sight. And suddenly, He-Man became, you know, this billion dollar empire. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 240. Available now on streaming and DVD is The Power of Grayskull, an informative and illuminating documentary that traces the Masters of the Universe franchise from toy line to a multi-brand pop culture phenom, featuring interviews with the many creative minds behind the toy line and cartoon to the likes of Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella. The Power of Grayskull is the ultimate resource for all things He-Man. And I'm happy to say joining me today is the film's directors, Robert McCalum and Randall Loeb, who will be with us shortly. Robert, I thank you very much for joining me on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I love talking to Australian outfits. uh, Probably more than anywhere else in the world, they seem to get the type of movies we like to make.
2: And uh, we love the movies that you do make. I've, we are talking off-air just now about how as soon as I saw the press release for this film, I knew I had to jump on it, watch it, and talk to you guys. And I'm so happy they took time out to, to talk to me today. I guess my first question is that... Uh, so, you and Randall, uh, Randall Loeb are uh, doing this um, film together. He had that Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles documentary from a couple of years ago. You yourself came off the Nintendo um, Quest um, series, um, which was very popular as well. How did you two guys get together, um, and why was it this subject, this project, the one that you both wanted to collaborate on and put out there to the masses?
1: Well, Turtle Power came out a year before Nintendo Quest. So just as I was wrapping up stuff on my end with that project, Turtle Power came out. And I and I just realized out of nowhere that it was by a group of filmmakers that live not too far from my hometown in Canada. So I thought, you know, being the communal kind of guy, reach out, talk to them, hear, hear their story and see what they went through. Because I thought it was a really cool concept and I hadn't seen the film yet. But I was really excited, kind of like you when you discovered that this He-Man thing was out there. And so after a quick chat with Isaac, who's one of our producers on Power of Grayskull as well, uh, it just seemed like there was a lot it, a lot of synergy. We, we believe the same kind of things. You know, we both like to make movies that celebrate stuff. And he said Mark and Randall were of the same ilk. And even in that first conversation, we only talked for an hour. I said, you know what? We need to do a He-Man documentary, just like your Turtle Power one. I'm a huge He-Man fan, just like you are a huge Turtle fan. Let's do the He-Man kind of version of this. And he, come in to hum- he hummed and hawed a bit and... You know, the call ended and time went on. I got more and more the itch as Nintendo Quest finished, wrapped up, and premiered to kind of explore He-Man because it was another one of my major favorite loves. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, those guys had kept coming across He-Man in their research, not only for Turtles, because a lot of the designers that worked on Turtles had come from the He-Man world, but also while they were doing their Conan the Barbarian documentary. Mm. So every turn, it seemed for them, it was like He-Man kept coming up and the universe was saying, Maybe this is another one that you guys should do. So after I made a cryptic post on Facebook about maybe dipping my toe into a He-Man documentary, Isaac called me back off and said, are you doing a He-Man documentary? Because if you are, maybe we should, you know, start the superpower team up. And a couple calls later, we decided that's exactly what we were going to do.
2: So it was just like this perfect fusion of both you guys had just, it was almost like an organic kind of thing where you're just drawn to each other. And also, Randall, having interviewed a lot of these people before in his Turtle documentary, for yourself, it would have been good to have that resource to delve into in regards to the He-Man story.
1: Yeah, I mean, those guys really bring uh, their deep dive uh, look at stuff. It almost comes from an academic point of view, really dissecting, you know, what makes the brand work and who are the key players in it. And they also have you know, this this great habit, I would say, of churning out really high-end material, which is a little bit different than some of the run-and-gun stuff that I'd been doing because Nintendo Quest was really on the fly. You know, it was a 30-day story in and out of toy stores and game stores non-stop all the time. So we didn't get the time to, to really do the setup and pretty shots. But I came with all the fandom for He-Man. So if they could t- harness my fandom and my passion for everything that made the brand great for 30 years, and I could work with their... Uh, knowledge of how to kind of approach it from an intellectual kind of academic point of view with their high end take on stuff, it seemed like it could only be a great meld of of the two worlds.
2: I distinctly remember the first time I came across anything with regards to him. I must have been five years old. Uh, this was like '86. I was in my backyard and digging, playing in the dirt, as kids do, and I unearthed a He-Man toy. It was beaten up, it had arms missing and such, but it was very distinct. And I was like, oh my god, what's this? And I had an older brother, that was his toy, he lost it a couple years previous, and then he showed me the cartoon. And it's a thing that's really stuck with me, and I don't know why. Um, Yourself, uh, Robert, when it comes to He-Man and Masters of the Universe, do you have a distinct first memory of when you first came across the character or the cartoon?
1: Probably not a distinct memory because I was, you know, only three, four, five years old max. I was probably around four years old when it first started kind of being a part of my routine. I remember distinctly watching it in my grandparents' basement, desperately waiting for Dukes of Hazard to finish so that He-Man could come on. Mm. And I just, I just loved the voices of all the different characters and the colorful world of the Filmation cartoon. And of course I had all the figures, so I'd usually be playing with Castle Skull that was always up on my bricked fireplace mantle in my grandparents' place and having my own battle. And then everything stopped when the show came on. And then I go back to playing my own stories and whatnot. Uh, and I really remember the episode, I, I believe it was uh, Prince Adam No More, where Adam can't change into He-Man. And he's, he's kind of with his father, King Randor, and they're trying to figure it out together to get out of Beastman's clutches. And it's kind of about that bond back and forth. And by the end of the episode, King Randor actually for the first time in like the whole series, it seems, looks favorably upon his son uh, that they were able to get through together. Because, of course, Adam you know, portrays himself as a slacker as to not draw attention to possibly be E-Man. So that, that episode and that feeling always stands out to me.
2: I always found it funny that he portrays himself in that way, but he's still very much has the same physique <laughs> that of uh, yeah. before he turns into He-Man, and I think that's one of the first kind of things that really grabbed my attention in regards to that toy and watching that cartoon is the physique of the characters. Like He-Man is swole. He's huge. He's like a big kind of build kind of guy, which is different to everything else at that time. Um, Something I wanted to ask you about, and, and I'll ask Randall about later as well is that, and it wasn't really touched on in documentaries. How much do you think, the pumping iron generation i mean that documentary came out a couple of years before he man was even uh, like a toy line how much do you think that kind of thing that underground uh physique bodybuilding mass bodybuilding kind of uh that was happening um affected the way that the um creators created um and made he man especially in regards to his look
1: I think it was probably a really big influence. And I mean, look at all the stuff that comes out in the 80s, right? It is all about that male macho bravado, muscles and guns and explosions and testosterone everywhere. I mean, I think there's even interviews in the documentary where they talk about, you know, the the He-Man. What happened to the He-Man of the world where they could go in and just do whatever they want? They had the muscles to do it. I mean, that's you look at the character, like you say, in the figure. I mean, he's just such a meaty figure. and That scale is almost never seen before. It hits, this, it hits the toy line and shelves with Masters of the Universe. It, it's, I think, very much a part of it. I think when Filmation came in, they started to tweak it a bit so that it was a little bit more acceptable, a little bit more aimed at kids, adding the wisdom and the kindness and the restraint of using the power instead of just being able to beat people up. So I think the muscles are, are clearly a big part of the, the evolution and the origins of it. And then where it goes after, I think, is to tam- like, you know hamper it down a bit so it's not so in-your-face. But again, a name like He-Man, it's got to be a little bit tied to that.
2: And joining us now on the, in the conversation is Co-Director Randall Loeb. Um, Randall, you had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles documentary uh, beforehand. Uh, Robert was talking to me about how he had just finished his Nintendo Quest. uh, documentary series as well and then both of you guys come together interestingly though the He-Man thing was more kind of like coming from Robert you were working on the Conan the Barbarian uh, documentary which is something that will be coming out later as well How was it Mm. that at that point you said, you know what, there's uh, emerging uh, interests here Um, because a lot of the people worked on Ninja Turtles, worked on the He-Man stuff as well. You had resources, you had access to people. How did it come about that, yeah, I'm going to work with this bloke who just did the Nintendo stuff and we're going to work together here?
0: Yeah, I was against uh, doing a He-Man documentary at first, (laughs) funny enough. It came to us through doing the Conan documentary, And we found three things. Now, Rob will remember the three things, I'm sure, because then he was the fourth thing. Um, When Isaac and I were interviewing people, we were finding these He-Man things, these, what do you want to call them, emergent tidbits of information. So we're inside the Conan archives, we're pulling out material, and there's some kind of suit between Mattel and Conan properties and there's an argument about He-Man, and there's discussion about people going to see John Millius's Conan movie and saying, uh-oh, uh-oh <laughs> we can't do this. And then the second thing was interviewing William Stout, and he was talking about Conan, and then he said, well, oh yeah, here's my He-Man stuff, and Isaac looked at me. Number two, uh, Isaac was keen the whole time. And the third time, uh, we were interviewing Gary Goddard, who did the Conan live show at Universal, The Stunt Spectacular and he of course did the film with Dolph Lundgren and when we hit three, Isaac said okay, this is three things in a row and I can't say how much longer it was that Rob psychically picked up on this information and he he reached out to Isaac and I think Rob, you correct me if I'm wrong hey, I'm going to do a documentary on He-Man and Isaac called me in a panic and said
1: oh my god yeah, it, well, it was similar. I'd reached out because i just discovered Turtle Power, and I pitched Isaac without knowing him for more than a half hour that we should do a He-Man version like Turtle Power. And then about a year later, I had posted something about possibly dipping my toe into a He-Man documentary, and then he called you panicking.
0: <laughs> okay, there
1: you go.
2: Um, a question that Robin and I were just about to touch on, Randall, was that I was making the um, uh, suggestion that... Our generation, or at least my generation, born early '80s, grew up, growing up in the '80s, were the, kind of like the first generation to ride the first pop culture wave, and I think as a result of that, we are more attached to things, toys, games, comics, for example. There may be generations prior to that. Um, do mm-hmm. you think that is a correct, uh, uh, um, a correct assessment on my end? And because of that we are more open to documentaries like this that touch on those things because these are things that very much mass media of that kind of uh, scale, Um, the cartoons, the toys, and then later movies as well, um, is something that evolved as we as children evolved as well.
0: Well, I think I'm a generation older than most of the He-Man fans. I don't know how old Rob is. I'm going to guess that he's... A good 10 years younger than I am.
1: And yeah, I'm in the early 80s as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. So my generation... I, I agree with your supposition. Let's start there. <clears throat> your generation was a generation that was inundated with pop culture messaging in a way that my generation was sort of the maybe the mid-stage of. And so we were given pop culture messaging but without as much licensed material and the, just the general conditions of, my, again, my older generation, you know, action figures were feminized to our dads or were evidence of feminizing toys to our dads. By the way, I disagree with that supposition. Um, so a lot of the toys were sort of just not, not really super available. And as the 80s come along, economic things are changing and there's a more consumerist structure and kids of that generation and are way more inundated so i think the common culture of toys was enhanced the idea that more kids had more stuff in general and more of that stuff was licensed and so you really were in the sweet spot you had a lot of stuff happening and remember too what year was it that those rules were changed around advertising, right? And toys. So prior to that, you know, in 1981, I'm 16 years old. I'm out of the woods, and I've already sort of uh, come out into what was happening then, maybe Blade Runner and Mad Max uh, Road Warrior, stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I sort of missed the fun, in a sense. So coming into it from the outside... I agree with what you say. Maybe Rob has a different strategy or theory.
1: I mean, it, it really piggybacks off it. And for me, it, it starts with Star Wars and the, the consumerism and the whole collect them all mentality. And when studios and other companies see the power that IP can have with merchandising, which was largely just a, a very small category before Star Wars, mm. you can see how much it explodes. I completely agree. 1980 with Reagan coming in changing advertising dynamics with merchandise now you can really push this stuff out there without getting slapped by the you know by the by the feds with you know selling the kids and pushing stuff on them so it only made sense that there were billions of dollars to be made and these companies were going to go after it as long as they had the ip whether it's a show or a cartoon to help be the vehicle to carry the toy sales you know uh, if i could jump in again there too
0: something else hit me i said that our dads, and, and by the way, I am maybe speaking about small-town dads in rural environments, you know, guys who were born in the 40s and 30s, but <clears throat> I think, too, that by the time you're in your mid-teens, in the 80s, if you're from a different generation, even toys seem like they're for kids. And the generation that you guys grew up in, it was always that toys were available for everyone. There, there wasn't quite as much of a stigma. And you were able to experience it without a lot of judgment potentially and again this is way more psychological than necessary but I do see the effects of it that you know Rob you think about when we were talking to like Paul Cleveland or Mark Ellis they're very much product focused and very uh, it's my job to make these toys and you talk to a different generation Scott Neelich and it's these toys are life yeah
1: definitely there's that certain dichotomy for sure
2: and I think that these toys are life thing is something that really borrows heavily into why people like, for example, the Toy Story movies. There's something in there uh, psychologically that a lot of people touch on. Um, Randall, there's something I want to ask you that Robert and I talked about previously, and and that is the, the look... Of the He-Man figures, that huge bodybuilding kind of look. And I Mm -hmm. asked Robert this question, how much do you think the pumping iron generation um, that the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger really ushered in um, kind of had an effect on the look of that? I mean, you're working on Mm -hmm. the Conan documentary as well. Um, You have those comics, but... There was this underground kind of phase, people going in the gym, physique was a big thing at the time, Stallone was also coming into um, into acclaim at that time, or was the body generation more than any other time before that? Do you think that had any type of effect on the design of, the, of these um, toys?
0: Man, that's really smart. Uh, I never thought of it quite like that, but that makes a lot of sense. You have definitely pumping iron is what 77 yeah around that time yeah 76 77 yeah that makes sense and first blood came out 81 82 and you're right that, that he really looked different than he did in rocky and and you're right there's i guess maybe without getting too dark here steroids had maybe become more commonplace and so there was a pop culture fetishism around muscles in a way that's that's a really good, that's a smart observation. jeez we should have put that in the doc
1: <laughs> well Uh-oh. I tried to say when he asked me earlier Rand, that Mark Taylor very specifically said you know in the 60s and 70s what happened to all the he-men, what happened to that that's guy right. who could walk through the mm-hmm. door in the bar with the jacked muscles who could take care of any problem and those things mm-hmm. are definitely in there and you can see how the 80s is all about male bravado and t- yeah. and 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 the bigger the better and size does matter
0: And you see the difference. You
1: look at Shane from the
0: 50s. Alan Ladd is this tough guy for that generation, and he couldn't look less powerful than Arnold and Dolph and, you know, Stallone. These guys are giants, comparably.
2: Um, Next question I have for you guys is. Going behind the scenes of the cartoon specifically, um, it seems to me that there was, was very much a progressive kind of slant there, especially in regards to the female characters. At that time, um, female toys, for example, they were for three things only, to present fashion, um, to teach cooking, and to talk about mothering. It seems those were the three aspects in regards to that. But the Masters of the Universe thing, it's female characters were warriors, and... She-Ra, for example, really um, personified a lot of that. And I I think the new cartoon that's out now on Netflix really just touches into that even more. Um, On one hand, you have He-Man, this kind of masculine thing, perhaps influenced by the bodybuilding generation. On the other hand, you have She-Ra. I think a lot of people don't really understand just how progressive it was behind the scenes because there are also female directors doing a lot of those episodes as well.
1: Yeah, Gwen Wetzler was, you know. Go ahead, Rob. She, she's an, Gwen Wetzler is just like an icon in my eyes. You know, she won Emmys, the first uh, woman director to win Emmys on Fat Albert. She was a Disney animator. So when she comes into filmation, I'm sure she's bringing a lot of influence. And, you know, you bring up He Man and She Ra. The female characters in the He Man universe are just really strong. You know, Marlena, Adam's mom, is an exploring astronaut from another dimension who comes there. She's not hampered at home in the kitchen. Tila is captain of the guard, and evil, uh, even Evil-Lyn, you know, is Skeletor's kind of right-hand go-to for creating all the mischief that they need. So while there might not be a ton of female characters in Masters of the Universe specifically, everyone is strong, and nobody is basically undercutting them and putting them in stereotypical roles. And, of course, you get to see that even more in Shira when there are a lot more female characters. And I think you really got to credit a lot of the writers as well as the directors.
0: And, cu- and coming out of the seventies, you have some female designers, and you have some female executives getting into positions of power at toy companies. And also, let's not forget that Mattel was a pretty strong uh, female in its a, f- a strong female component in its founding. Uh, you have a partnership between a uh, husband and wife, so I think Mattel at one point, for all that there were stereotyping. Uh, lines or threads of stereotyping where we're through the early toys and poor Barbie has done a lot of crappy jobs you have women finally starting to say okay well we need something else we need something that reflects the other things that are happening in culture like movies like Norma Ray or just the way Jane Fonda's movies started to change it's interesting it is
2: very interesting Uh, Randall something I wanted to ask you is a, a, a theme that pops up Um, persistently throughout the documentaries, that of censorship especially in regards to the creativity of the universe the masters of the of the universe world Um, on one end you have activist groups who were saying what uh, a a male character or a female character can and cannot do on the other end you have Mattel who say that we need to sell these um, toys to kids so the cartoon can't do this the movie can't do that Um, those kind of conflicting um uh things that are happening there um how much do you think really hampered um the evolution of masters of the universe as a franchise do you think that if those restraints weren't there it could have flourished into something else that
0: maybe could have evolved
2: with the audience
0: so two things the competition i think are happening at the same time it's better to have guards up it's better to have constraints sometimes for creativity because it forces people to make decisions you know against whatever's working you know opposite to what they want to do so if you're a writer Agreed. and you can't show people doing remember the line Barbara Hambley said Robert um children may be moved to emulate yeah was the line and you have then as a writer to really address okay what are we going to have the um but the other side is, I don't think that the censorship is bad in its, um, in its application. I think the censorship is bad when it's in- internally adopted. So if an outer group censors material coming out of a, a company or Mattel, let's say, that's one thing. It's, it's probably fine because they'll find ways to get around it or to deal with it. But if the censorship is implemented from inside, then there is a an impingement on creativity. And then they're sort of, they're not reacting against something. They're trying to do something. And I think that what happened with Masters, and again, Robert maybe would have a different vision on this. They started to go down a path where they were losing some R&D or what was the reason for this to happen or the thinking around it got sort of lazy or more corporatized. Fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's really fair. I mean, we hear from Mark Taylor and one of the reasons he left is they kind of started to abandon the rules and those guards about what made the universe great were no longer there. So they started doing anything and everything possible just to put the logo on a packaged figure that fit the line. And When you do that, it all becomes watered down and it doesn't seem like it's part of it anymore.
0: So Masters of the Universe, go ahead, go ahead. I I was just going to jump in there. Robert's perspective is interesting because he was a kid watching the show, probably not thinking about censorship, right? So his interaction with the show, the censorship becomes irrelevant. It's when the the people making the show start to censor themselves that is the problem, in my estimation.
2: So you have a franchise that has succeeded in two different industries. You have the toys and you have TV. Um, So naturally, the leap is to movies. The problem is, as a lot of people pointed out in your documentaries, that the Masters of the Universe movie really seemed like a film that was made in the wrong generation. The the special effects weren't there. Um, And this was also back in the days when anything movie-wise that was connected to, say, a comic book property or anything pop-culture-esque, didn't really flourish. I mean, it was a couple of years until Batman will come out. Superman did, some, did something great in the early late 70s, but nothing could really emulate that. Um, do you think this whole kind of Master of Universe, the movie experience, was just a case of, look, it was wrong place, wrong time, the technology wasn't there, and because of that, do you think that maybe the movie has been or any idea of a future movie has been cursed because of the um, reaction to the original film?
1: I, I think it's kind of the opposite. Robert, why don't you yeah, jump in. Yeah, I think the 87 movie is, has gone so far away from those initial reactions and what people think they remember. It's now become a beloved cult classic mm-hmm. where people accept it, foibles and all. Sure, it might not have had the budget that it needed. Sure, they might not have been able to pull off the vision and, and all the way that we see films succeed now but they're like Randall was talking about with restrictions there's some really nice things that happen because they couldn't do everything uh, and it uh, honestly there's a lot of examples in that film where other filmmakers since have taken the same kind of idea and put it in their films you look at the final battle between Skeletor and he that's done essentially in dark with flashes of light is that not exactly the same uh, setup that George Lucas used an Attack of the Clones, between Dooku and Anakin, it's all black, it's all flash of light, you have no sense of set, and yet it works. Because it's just about the two characters having uh, a chance to resolve their conflict. So yeah, it might be cheesy, but there's a lot of love in that cheesiness. And because it is love now, I think the stage can be set for a new movie without fears of, oh, are we going to repeat our mistakes? And if I was going to
0: add to that, I would say... To me, it's not wrong place, wrong time. It's right place, wrong time, perhaps wrong time. um, You know, G- Gary Goddard, his name in the press now has had some tarnish on it. But he approached that movie like he's trying to make a great movie. And yeah. William Stout is trying to make a great movie. Franklin Jealous. Like, everyone's trying to make a great movie. But the auspices of the the business end of it, above the creatives, I think they looked at it in a way that was just sort of like that idea i was giving you about action figures and such when i was a kid that the idea that uh, you know these things are just silly and goofy and they don't have resonance you know they're not real so to speak so this isn't a real movie it's just a kid's movie to me that seems like that was in play to some degree
2: and i think that anyone who saw that documentary on canon the films as well saw that it wasn't a best exactly. kind of environment to make movies in as well um, and that very much happened on, on that. Um, when So both of you you delve into this world um, what was it if there was a thing uh, or a few things that surprised you in regards to everything and, and let me just put two of my own. Number one is Frank Langella talking about just how buff he was when he was making a skeletal movie that's number one um, and number two is all the great Artwork, all the great uh, drafts and drawings that these creators showed showed us on screen. I really love watching the evolution of a character brought to life on the screen and just the different drafts and stuff. I think it was just fantastic. What was it like to be in a room with these artists as they're bringing out their original drafts of these characters? And was there anything that surprised you guys in regards to the evolution of this franchise um, uh, when you were making the film about it?
0: Do you want me to open up there, Rob? Yeah, go for it, Rand. So one thing that hits me was you can, you can look at a, the end result of a movie and you can say, oh, it was cheesy. I can tell you right now, nothing that the people did in prep was cheesy. Yeah. When you have Moebius and Richard Corbin and William Stout and Ron Cobb uh, influencing William Stout, so like you have these really big names, people who are doing really excellent, really fine work. And you see William Stout's iterations, dude. They are shocking. The amount of detail, the amount of thought, the amount of research and technique that he would put into play to create something that later someone is going to laugh at and say, cheesy frame, that's the biggest shock for me.
1: Yeah, I would have to kind of go along with the same degree that Randall's saying. I mean, I was really surprised, because again, I was a kid when this series came out. To me, it's just these characters and for people to kind of you know, disrespect the movies and other things that are coming out because it didn't hit the mark for them, but to see the work that goes into it and where they were trying to go with the vision and just basically set it up at the exact possible right tone. Like it was just mind like mind blowing. I think other than William Stout's uh, work on the film, the other stuff that I really liked was some of the stuff that uh, we discussed with Martin Ariola who talks about all the mm. different directions that He Man was going to go. Uh, before it went on the new adventures, you know, they talked about He-Man in the military, He-Man, you know, in space, of course. You know, He-Man as kind of, you know, a baseball guy or whatever. Like they were really exploring a lot of those different directions for the brand to try to really revitalize it. And I had no idea that they were really that desperate to kind of figure out what He-Man could do instead of just sticking with the same theme. So that that was interesting for me.
2: Final question for you both, and Randall, I'll ask you to answer it first. You are charged with relaunching Masters of the Universe for a new generation. Which avenue do you go down? Do you go down a traditional road, a new animated film with a toy line? Or do you continue pressing on with a movie adaptation, which for a long time now has really struggled
0: to, to get off the ground? How did you know that I've been charged with this? I Who's talking? I this, spilled the beans. the secret. <laughs> uh look i'm a, not like some other people who are fans of these franchises i love this line <laughs> that megan megan casey said a line to me when we we're doing um another turtles thing she worked at nickelodeon now she's at netflix she's in charge of animation over there uh, a type of animation and she said everybody gets their own turtles And that's the power of the Turtles, is they can constantly reboot. And somebody, some old fan, is gonna go, Yeah, those aren't my my Turtles. But there's some kid who needs his or her own turtle. I'm a huge fan of revisionism. I like to see everybody's Batman. I want to see everybody's He-Man. If you told me that Sony went in a crazy direction, And they had a surprising actor and they were taking what they felt was the spirit and the intention and sort of the key markers of that franchise and implementing them in a new way. I'd say that's interesting to me. I like that because we always have the old iterations available to our use. We can go back and participate with them and get that nostalgic feeling. Give me something new. I think that's fun. What about yourself, Robert?
1: Well, I mean, I completely agree with randall and when i try to talk about this with people i say you know randall loves the oddities the strange things the offshoot that weird multiverse iteration that came out and you know he kind of won me over looking at stuff like that you know if i if you're looking for a direct pitch for masters of the universe i would say that it needs to go animated i think it needs to go comedy i think teen titans go is a really good example where you can take these colorful characters play up the fact that you know they are very cartoon like you have a guy named he-man who can come in and, sh- and save the day at any point i think it's the perfect kind of platform to to really rejuvenate things and again everybody says masters for it to succeed has to has to win over the kids not the adults because they've already got the adults
0: hmm. so why
1: not try to get that new generation in it's
0: a very good point rob i want to see that i want to see that show rob make that show
1: okay i'm on it <laughs> i'll
0: be the first to get watch
1: start this shit. <laughs> The documentary
2: is The documentary is Power of Gold, The Definitive History of He-Man and the <laughs> Masters of the Universe You can find information on their Facebook page He-Man Documentary There's also a website called He-Man.com um, I have saw the film on Netflix It's available here in Netflix Australia I'm pretty sure it's available on Netflix other regions There's also a DVD release coming out September 3rd And uh, Randall, Rob and I were talking um, before uh, beforehand About how we very much like getting that physical copy. So I think for a lot of people out there, I, I think there's lots of interest in getting that physical copy. And um, I'm sure, uh, are you yourself in the same way? I know we're in the era of streaming, but having that physical thing in your hand, I'm sure that's, that's pretty much the way to go, isn't it?
0: Uh, listen, I know Robert's already said this to you, and I know he's in full agreement with this based on, you know, his model is... What about the collectors? Let's look at collecting and in fact bake the collecting into the show like Nintendo Quest. It's it's in the, the DNA of the, the idea behind what they're doing. If you don't show uh, or play to or address or deal with the fetishism of collectors, you're missing the people you need to incentivize because that's who acts as mavens online. That's how things get spread. Those are your best word of mouth people. I think and I've had this argument with distributors, I think to, f- to forget about that group of people is to lose your hardcore flag wavers. You need to have collectibles.
2: Very, very well said. Uh, Randall, uh, Robert, McCallum, I thank you very much for taking time out to talk to me today. It's a terrific documentary. Um, and again, congratulations to you both.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And Rob, drive safely